Welcome to this podcast of the Sunday Message from Hope Gateway, a United Methodist community in Portland, Maine. If you live locally, we'd love to have you join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Visit our website at www.hopegateway.com to learn more. But whether you live near or far, we hope you find this message to be meaningful. Wherever you are, join us in doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. Good morning, Hope Gateway. Yes, good morning, everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, my name is Ophelia Hukini. Um, I am here with my friend Kathy this morning, and Kathy is going to bring the message. And my only job here is to make this feel more like a conversation that we're having amongst friends and family, kind of like we're all at a dinner table together, but without all the drama. So. <laughs> Um, Kathy has been kind and um, generous enough to share some of her wisdom and life experiences with us today. And um, she'll also, um, you'll also leave some time for folks to answer, to yes. ask some questions of you too, which is very yes. kind. Yes, we'll have quite, I'd like to say first of all, a couple things um, in, as an introduction. First of all, um, we do want this to be like a conversation amongst all of us. So if I'm talking and you have a question, or a comment, or you want clarification, please don't hesitate to, to raise your hand and ask it. I want to reassure you that I've had, in, in a number of my previous jobs in mental health, I've spoken quite a bit about my story and about mental illness, so I'm not sensitive about any of it. I'm not sensitive to stigma or, or anything that surrounds mental illness, so anything you want to ask that you maybe at some point in your life wondered about, wanted to ask, feel free to ask me. And also, uh, at, again, at some of my jobs, I've testified before the legislature. And I always start with this, with this little comment um, because I, I like to believe that the more people understand, the less judgmental they'll become. I don't know if that's true or not, but I like to believe it. So I, I would like to say that mental illness I think is a particularly cruel and disease of loss. And I call it cruel because it strikes young people on the cusp of adulthood, right when they're ready to begin the lives they've been dreaming of and preparing for when they were younger. They're like in their finishing high school or just starting in the middle of college. They're maybe working their first job. They're um, thinking about getting married, you know. And all of a sudden, all that is taken away from them. All that is gone. They lose their future. And that's one of the first things you lose as a, when you become mentally ill, what I call their uh, career, uh, a uh, life of loss, a disease of loss. You lose your future. You lose your, um, usually lose your job, your education. You probably lose your friends because they don't understand. All of a sudden, you're gone and you're, you won't talk to them and you're acting crazy and they, they, don't, they don't know what to make of it. A lot of people lose their families for the same reason. Families don't understand. You know, they think you're on drugs, they think you're drinking. They, they, they don't understand what what's all of a sudden has happened to you. And um, also, sometimes you lose your freedom. You end up being locked up. And um, 
you lose, as I said before, you lose, at least it feels like at the time, you lose your future, any hope you have of reaching your goals. So um, that being said. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for starting us off with enough wisdom and grounding and foundation to have this conversation. Thank you. Is that better? Okay. Thanks, Eileen. Thank you. So, Kathy, I'd love for you to start off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay, I, I know most of you, even though I don't go to the 11 o'clock service. Didn't that that. All right, let me try to do that. I'm going to try and do that. No, don't apologize. Now, how about that? Okay. That'll stay right there. Oh, and cloud now. Is it too loud? Is it too loud? Okay. Um, uh, my name is Kathy Long. I've been going to Hope Gateway. I found out six and a half years. I didn't realize it was that long. My family's originally from Philadelphia. My father was in the military attaché of the Foreign Service, which means we lived for three years in the United States and then three years abroad. And my parents retired here when I was in high school, so I went to three years of high school at South Portland High School. I went out of state to a small co-ed college called Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, where I studied philosophy. And then I went out to Wichita, Kansas as a VISTA volunteer to work in a legal aid society to see if I liked law and being a lawyer, and I did. So I came back here and went two years of law school at the University of Maine in Portland, and then I became, then I became ill. Can you tell us a little bit about the experience or what it felt like to become yeah, ill? Yeah, it was, um, this ha I know from talking to people, this happens to them a lot. I didn't see it, but it must have been like creeping up on me over a series of months. But it's just like within a month's time, all of a sudden I began to think there was a conspiracy against me, which is very common with, for people with my diagnosis, schizophrenia. I thought, I thought professors at the school would, had, were involved in a plot to try and push me toward one of the professors who I didn't want to be pushed toward. And then I started to think it was ex the... the um, the uh, conspiracy extended to my job where I was, when I was, I was working in the social work department of the undergraduate college. I thought people there were doing it. I had another, another part-time job as a cocktail waitress. I thought it was happening there. I thought the, and then I got to the point where I thought articles I read in the paper were directed at me personally and were also about the situation. And on one hand, I couldn't talk to people about it because it, when I thought about it, it seemed so far-fetched. It couldn't possibly be true. You know, I thought, well, you know, that's conspiracies that happens in the movies or on TV. It doesn't happen to pending the second-year law students in Portland, Maine. It just doesn't happen to them. Um, but on, on another level, it seemed so real to me that I couldn't ignore it. So I had to leave school, and that was a big production because once they... Um, put a certain amount of energy and effort into training you. They don't like to let you go. And they kept sending my classmates to, down to see me. I'll oh, come back. It was right before I was supposed to take my exams. Oh, we'll, we'll let you take your exams late. You can have all the time you need to study. Take a little rest. Come back. You know, Come talk to us. But I, I couldn't bring myself to go and talk to them. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't 
tell them what was going on. I just couldn't do it. So I finally, after much, much talking back and forth, they finally said, okay, we are not coming back and we understand. And um, my parents thought I was doing drugs. And they kept sending me away to my aunt in Pennsylvania or my sister in Washington, D.C. You know, they didn't know what to make of this because no one in my family had ever been <gasps> to a psychiatrist, you know, and they, they just couldn't imagine there was anything like that wrong with me. And finally, my sister, who was a, well, she's passed on now, but she was a pediatric nurse practitioner. She finally said, look, she's got a mental illness. You've got to take her to the hospital. So they took me up to Hold Hall, uh, which is now Magichi Hall, and um, I saw a psychiatrist and a counselor, and that's when my whole journey with mental illness began. But it was like, it seemed to me, sudden. It happened all of a sudden, within a month's time. And I, if you can imagine having a rich, full life, I mean, I, which I did. I had friends, I had jobs, I had, I had school, I had, you know, I went to parties. Uh, uh, I mean, I had a rich, full of work. I, I had a lot of, I had a rich, full life. And then all of a sudden, within a month's time, I had nothing. I pushed my friends away. I didn't want to talk to my parents about it. Um, I couldn't work. Um, it was like just emptiness had taken place all within the course of a month, you know, and that was hard. Yeah. Thank you for sharing, Kathy. Um, when you were talking about how your family raised you, that nobody in your family had gone to see a psychiatrist or, um, you know, your, you said that your mother was worried that you were using drugs. It seems to me like you come from a really driven family, a family that has certain metrics of um, what it means to be, quote unquote, successful. Can you right. tell me a little bit about your family upbringing and about your spiritual upbringing? I came, I was, I grew up in a very strict Lutheran church. Um, I can count, I said this in the first service too, I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I missed church from the time I was born to the time I left my father's house. And um, I mean, I went to church, I went to Sunday school, I went to vacation Bible school, I went to church camp in the summer, I went to, I went to um, a confirmation class, and back then Lutheran church, you had to memorize Luther's small catechism, not all at once, but you know, three or four pages each week. And, you know, so, and my father did devotions, had devotions at home. So I was seeped in the Christian tradition, but it didn't mean anything to me. I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel a connection with God. I didn't feel God's presence. I just did everything. I, re I said and did everything I was supposed to do, but it was kind of by rote, just because it was expected of me, and so I did it. But once I left my father's house, I didn't go to church anymore. I didn't miss it, you know? And um, now, my, because of my illness, I feel much closer connection with God. I, it's kind of like, I hadn't, it's kind of like the difference between having no faith, which is what I would say, well, a lot of people, when I, when I talk about what, when I was growing up, would think I was a person of faith. But I, I felt no faith then. I felt no faith in God. I, it was just something I did. And after I became ill, I began to feel, I began to turn to God <clears throat> for help, and the Holy Spirit listened. And I felt a, a, I felt a faith for the first time in my life. 
Thanks. What do you think was the process of, or how did you come to rely on God or to develop a bond with God? I just was desperate. And I've heard people in recovery talk this way too, you know, um, from, from substance abuse, you know. You get to a point where you need, you need to believe. You need to accept God's love because you're, you're so desperate and lost and you need, you need that reassurance that there's someone there, that there's someone who cares. And I, I started praying is what I started doing. And not always, but oftentimes when I prayed, I usually prayed for peace, prayed to the Holy Spirit because that's genderless. And so it was easier for me to pray to him. And um, um, I felt something. I felt, I felt, um, I felt the peace. Not always, but oftentimes I felt the peace I was praying for. And also, um, I would like to say that um, one of the biggest blows I had to get over when I left, of course, it was I, I grieved leaving law school for many years because I had poured, poured my heart and soul into it. I really wanted to be a lawyer. I had all kinds of plans. And um, I, um, I had to face the fact that as a, as a kid in this country, I was brought up the way a lot of kids are, with a whole mantra that um, you can do anything you want to do. You're, you could follow your dreams. You know, don't, don't be afraid to dream too high, because if you work hard and you plan hard, and you really are realistic about your goals, you can do anything in the world. And when I lost my law school career, I realized that this isn't always true. You know, sometimes things happen outside our realm of experience, I mean, outside our realm of control, and um, we don't reach our goals. And that, another, I mean, not only was that a, that a hard pill to swallow, and, and really dumb, I was dumbfounded by it. Really, it sounds silly, but I was dumbfounded by that. I, I thought, that can't be true. That's not what I've been told, you know? And, but it also taught me compassion. I mean, now I used to look at people who didn't make, who weren't, say, successful in, the, in our traditional sense of money and a good job and kids and a house and a husband and a wife. And um, I used to look at people who didn't have that and think, well, they must have been lazy or they, they didn't plan properly or they didn't really try, you know, or they, they wanted to be brain surgeons and that was too hard or something. And now I, I I, when I meet people like that, I think, um, I think that probably something else under their control happened to them, and they, they, they weren't where they thought they would be in life. That's a really important learning for all of yeah. us to remember, that sometimes there are things within our control, but a lot of times there are also just circumstances. Yes. Um, Kathy, is there a a Bible passage that you love or that has taught you either compassion or given you peace? I love the Beatitudes um, because persons with mental illness are usually on the lowest, lowest rung of the world, you know, and the Beatitudes talks a lot about the meek and the downtrodden, the persecuted, and gives me faith that even though people are not necessarily successful by the world standards, God still values them. Mm, yes, 
So though, blessed are those with mental illness because theirs will be the kingdom of God. Yes. Mm. Or they should be comforted. Yes. Agreed. Um, what are some of, you, you mentioned some of the lessons that you've learned from living with mental illness, and you also talked a little bit about, um, you said, traditional standards of success. Um, going through the life experiences that you've gone through, now what do you think makes for a successful life? Well, I believed, what, I had a plan for my life when I was younger. I'm sure everybody does, but I had a very strict plan. I was going to go to law school. I was going to get a good job. And so I could establish myself, and I was going to be independent financially. Then I was going to find a guy, and we were going to have a couple of kids and buy a house, and I was going to be a successful attorney. And um, that, to me, I was going to make a lot of money. And that, to me, was a meaningful life. And after I became ill, not right away, but within a little while, I began to change my idea of what a meaningful life was. And now, to me, a meaningful life is, first of all, having a meaningful connection with God through the Holy Spirit, having a meaning, meaningful connection with other people, especially people in the church family, but other people too, good friends, having a, mean, a deep, meaningful relationship with them, and having a job that is um, meaningful too in the sense that it contributes something. And um, right now, I'm, I'm fortunate, I have a job working for Sweetser. I don't know if any of you have heard of a warm line. It's, it's like a hotline. A hotline is for crisis. Warm line is for people who are just, maybe they're lonely or they're depressed or they're feeling anxious about something and they don't have anybody they can talk to, so they call us up and we talk to them. And I feel really good about that job because I feel like I'm, I'm helping, I'm, why do we use that word so much, helping people? But I feel like I'm connecting with them. And, and it's, it's great because there's very little, like small, on a jo- in a situation like that, there's very little small talk you, have, you make about the weather or, you know, I mean, you know, people are really, a lot of people are really suffering and they need, and they, they talk right away very, very honestly because it's easier too, because there's kind of a, an anonymity on the phone so that they don't, that, that they feel comfortable spilling, you know. But um, they talk honestly and directly about what they're feeling and I, I am free to talk back too. I've been told I'm free to talk back to, uh, to them honestly and directly about my experiences. So that to me is, is one of the most important, important, I mean I don't make a lot of money doing it but I'm, uh, I would call that meaningful or successful, a successful life. I would also call that really meaningful. And I love that you're able to bring so much of your actual self into the work that you do and make it so fulfilling for yourself and for other people. Too. Yes, that's one of the things that, I, I mean, I, when I was work, I think I mentioned it, when I was working at, I worked for about 10 years in the mental health field. And um, I liked, I really enjoyed, after I got over my stage fright of doing it, I really enjoyed speaking with, to groups about my experience with mental illness because I could take, it was a very, it was difficult, it was a very difficult experience, but I could take it and turn it into something positive by sharing it with other people and maybe educating them a little bit about what the experience is like. And that, I, as you mentioned, I feel that way about my job. I feel like I can take the painful parts and the difficult years and use them as a way of connecting with other people and showing them it does pass. It, it often, oftentimes it does pass and um, 
get richer for it. Absolutely. That is quintessentially holy work, saying this is the everyday, this is the ordinary, and I know that God can use this for the healing and transformation yes. of other people. Yes. Um, I also loved, what did you say earlier? I'm trying to remember. Oh. You know what? Never mind. There are so many other great questions. So um, I love that you've talked about some of the lessons that you've learned from living with mental illness and um, ways that you um, have learned compassion for other people. Do you have any advice or wisdom for us on being more compassionate um, and patient people? Well, what I'd like to mention is that mentally ill people are not always the easiest people to interact with. I mean, some of them are uncapped or some of them um, are, are withdrawn, they're hard to draw out, or some of them are just kind of a little off and you don't feel comfortable talking to them, or some of them are difficult to engage in conversation. And, um, and, but I will remind all of us that we, in the welcoming statement, we, we welcome people of all abilities and disabilities to be part of our congregation. And I think it's what's important to me, what's been important to me at Hellgateway and other places too, is just to be treated with a little kindliness and friendliness. Because some people who have mental illness, they might come to church and this is um, the only time they have during the week that they're with other people. And just having someone say, hello, how are you? How was your week? Good to see you. You don't have to sit down and have a big one-to-one -one with them. Just extend a, extend a greeting to them. Make them feel welcome like that. That's all you need to do. And um, be patient. Be a little patient and kind and welcoming, friendly. And that, that can make all the difference to someone who's suffering with mental illness. Thank you, Kathy. So unless there's something else that you would like to say right now, I'd love to open it up to the rest of Does the Does anybody have any church? questions they might like to ask? Yes, Sam. Kathy, I really appreciate your story. Uh, we've interacted and known each other now for several years, but I never knew your story. It's a story mentioned here. The question I have is, uh, I know people, psychiatrists, psychologists, I'm sorry, what was that? That often people in the mental health field see religion, Christianity, as part of the problem, not as part of the solution. And that's something that you had any of that experience, uh, people who did not understand your faith or appreciate your faith. I haven't really had that experience. I had people who think it's irrelevant. Um, it's um, it's not so, when I try when I've tried to talk a little bit about my spirituality. They say yes, yes. Did you take your meds? <laughs> you know, and um, you know, it's I haven't run against up against someone who who is actively against my participation in a in a religious life, having a, a spirit. I call it spiritual call, having a spiritual life. But I would say they, they feel so it's irrelevant. It's got nothing to do with my cure. Or not my cure, you're never really cured, my recovery. Yes, Eileen. I need to know how your family uh, relationships have 
I, w I will say, I mean, I, yeah, are you done? I wish it had a, they had involved, evolved. <laughs> when I, as I said, when I first became ill, they thought it was drugs. They sent me away to this relative and that relative. They finally said, agreed it was mental illness, and they took me to the hospital, and I was diagnosed and, and put on meds and given a psychiatrist. But I don't, I mean, I, I honestly think they never really accepted that I was mentally ill or understood it. Um, my mother used to say, you have all your faculties. You can see, you can hear, you can talk. You're, you don't have any mobility issues. You can walk, you can use your hands, get a job. You know, there's nothing wrong with you. And um, the only time they were really, ha I mean, they were always there for me. I mean, I always had a place to, they a place to go. You know, if I got evicted from an apartment or something, they always, I always went back home and they took care of me and got me a new apartment and stuff. But the only time that they were really happy with me was when I had a, a good job. Because then they, I was doing what they expected of me, what they thought I, was, I should do. And then at one point, uh, later on, I, I went through a delusional episode and my sister tried to get guardianship over me. And that made me furious. And it was, didn't go through, didn't work didn't, for her. She took me to court, we went to court and it didn't, it didn't go through, it got thrown out. But after that, I wouldn't have anything to do with my family for a good 15 years. So it's been rocky. It's been I'm rocky. I'm sorry. I mean, it's been wonderful to hear a different story. How have you dealt with it? As, I'll tell you, I mean, uh, I've read that this is true. So it's not just me. I think it is scientifically proven true. But as I get older, the symptoms get less and less. I used to have a delusional episode, uh, even though I was taking medication and everything while I was working, I used to have a delusional episode like once every two or three years where I'd have to take a leave of absence from my job for two, like two or three weeks and go into the hospital and have my medication adjusted and everything. But it's been maybe 10 years since I've had a, anything like that. I still have go through periods of depression and anxiety. but. Um, I've kind of accepted it now. I, I don't rail against it the way I, I did when I was first diagnosed. I was, I refused to take my medication. I, I'd go to the doctor and they'd say, are you taking medication? Oh, yes. But, um, the, I, and I have, a, not all, this is not true of all mental illnesses, but my mental illness is a chemical imbalance in my brain. I know it is because the right medication, which took half my life to get, but the right medication, makes it go away. So as I've gotten older, it's gotten easier and easier to, to tolerate. And um, I honestly, I, like, I, like, I think back sometimes and think, how, why did I become ill in the first place? There's no mental illness in my family. There's, and I don't know. Well, <laughs> there are some people in my family that I think should have been treated, that should have got, gotten counseling. but. Um, Let's just say nobody was on the mental health track uh, as far as getting treatment and whatnot goes. Randy. I know we hear from time to time about various resources available for people who are in a crisis mode or whatever, and it might be good to know about that, but I would also like to ask, are there resources available for family or friends who are learning to cope with all this and trying to be a support? Um, I think 
that yeah. the people around the person who's suffering also suffer and probably Oh, yes. Work. It must be. Uh, I think it, this is, I've not had this experience, but it must be excruciating to, to have uh, someone you love becoming ill and living with mental illness and watching what happens to them and feeling powerless, like you can't do anything. There is a group called NAMI, I don't know if you've heard of it, N-A-M-I, National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, and those are family members. And they have um, offices, there's one in Portland, and the, the headquarters for it is in, is in Augusta. And they um, try to be supportive, they have groups for people who have loved ones who are struggling with mental illness, they do advocacy and support. If, if someone was faced with that situation, that's what I would recommend to them. Thank you. Sure. Yes. Yes. That was helpful? Yeah, and they educated us in all kinds of things. Because things that you look at and you think the person is doing it on purpose, and they are driving you crazy. Like my brother would lay on the couch, there was stuff he was supposed to do, he was living at my house, he would lay on the couch with a pillow over his head for hours, and I would come home, and the dishes would all still be in the sink, yeah. and nothing would be done. So, yeah. So once you understood, you could you could accept it more. You could have more patience with it. Yeah. 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 That's good. Yeah. That's good. And I just had empathy with him and pride with it. You know, because yeah, instead of being angry. That's good if you have a family that's willing to do that. Not all families are. Pushing everyone away, um, 
Not a lot. Um, if someone's in crisis, they can go to the emergency room and they'll be admitted. But usually, um, they, as you probably know, I don't know who's been in this situation, they don't keep you very long. Um, sometimes you have to wait, hard as it is, you have to wait until the person gets fed up. Gets fed up with living the way they're living. Like I, when I was first diagnosed, I spent the first 10 years drinking beer, um, listening to music, and lying in bed in my own apartment, in a dumpy little apartment. I didn't have very much money, and I didn't have a job or anything. I just, I just did nothing. And after 10 years of that, I got fed up. And until then, I, I pushed everybody away. My parents tried to, tried to be there for me and my family, but I pushed them all away. But after I decided I didn't want to live that way anymore, um, then they, they, they came back into my life and helped me rebuild my life. But, in, but it, I mean, you can't very well drag somebody, if someone doesn't want to get help, you can't very well drag them by the hair to treatment. Unless they're dangerous to themselves or others, or they, it's shown that they can't care for themselves safely, they, you have to let them go. And sometimes, like with, like with, with um, the recovery community, um, they have to reach bottom before they're willing. It's a very hard thing to admit you have a mental illness. Nobody wants to be mentally ill. It's partially, too, because there's still so much stigma about it. You, know? you don't, you don't want to have to face that about yourself. It took me half my life to get to the point where I, could, I really believed and could accept that I had a mental illness. It's hard. Was that? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thank you well, so thank much you. for sharing your time and your wisdom with us. Yes. Thank you for listening.